Hey, and welcome to The Token Daily. I'm your host, Suna Amaz. Each week, we sit down with movers and shakers in crypto to discuss big ideas, both in crypto and outside of it. Everything from trends we're seeing in the space to the books we're reading lately. This podcast is presented by the folks over at Blockworks Group, a blockchain event and media production company. For exclusive content and events that provide insights into the crypto and blockchain space, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. Zuko Wilcox is founder and CEO of Zcash Co., the company behind Zcash, a privacy-focused digital currency. On the show today, we discuss the founders' reward debate, the new proposed Zcash algorithm, what it'll take to get people to care about privacy, and the story behind why Zuko, at one point, was living out of his car. For listeners at home, I was wondering if you could give us a brief background about you and let us know what you're up to today. Well, I worked at Digicash, which was a really important startup way back in the 1990s. It was basically the first cryptocurrency, um, and it was founded by this great pioneering cryptography scientist whose name is David Chom. Um, that was my first job out of college. I actually dropped out of college to go work for that uh, guy at that company because I thought that was the most important, coolest thing ever. So you dropped out of college, joined Digicash, and what was the journey there like? The journey at Digicash? Well, it turned out to be a great idea to drop out of college. One of the best moves of my life because I wasn't any good at learning in college and um, taking advantage of the opportunity and getting anything done. I was a terrible student. And once I dropped out and went to work at this startup that I loved and cared about the technology and the social impact of it. And I was surrounded by all these experts. Uh, It was kind of, um, was one of those things where the founder of that company, <clears throat> who, as I said, was a sort of a a giant in the field of sci- of the of the science of cryptography, and he had gathered together a whole ensemble cast of really skilled expert cryptographers, and that those were my coworkers. So I learned I started learning a lot once I dropped out of college, and I also learned how to get things done and, you know, be responsible. No better teacher in life than um, the real world. We have a lot to cover, so let's just jump right to it. I'd like to talk about Founders Reward. It's an elegant design in Zcash that's attracted a little bit of controversy. Can you explain to listeners at home on a high level what it is and what the qualms around Founders Reward is? Okay, the Founders Reward, it's... um, Zcash was launched about a little more than two years ago, two and a half years ago, in October of 2016. And back then, there were a few other altcoins, so-called, that had previously been launched. And a lot of them had come with what people called a pre-mine, where um, the creators of the coin or some special parties would get a batch of the newly created coin right up front. And this really great thinker named Andrew Miller, who's um, a computer scientist and um, the author of, or the co-author of many good cryptocurrency research papers, was advising me back then. And he suggested taking that pre-mine and stretching it out in a multi-year period, sort of like a vesting schedule in Silicon Valley. 
at a startup. And then we renamed it the Founders Reward. What are the qualms or controversies around it? People who are against the Founders Reward, what are the common arguments you hear? Um, I kind of think I should ask you, but let me ask you first, and then I'll tell you my answers. What are the controversies or qualms? Why do, what, what problems do people have with the Founders Reward? On a very high level, I think that they feel as though the miners or the developers are being robbed or there's some type of opportunity cost mm. here, and the founders are getting a big payout. It's the classic CEO, evil billionaire type narrative mm. that you see in movies that I see being replicated. Mm. Yeah, I think you're right. There's just a very general concept of like greed as the problem. Like greed smells bad and it's a, you know, it's a bad sign that you should stay away from if there's greed. And so I think one of the problems is just I think there are two objections to the founders reward. One of them is just sort of a lack of appreciation of the motive for it or the the function that it serves, um, which is that it's a way to fund ongoing development of the protocol. And so if if someone thinks that there's a different or better way to fund the ongoing development of a protocol, or if they think that development of protocols should not be funded and instead it should either be volunteer or it just shouldn't maybe the protocol shouldn't be developed or, or whatever, then they would object to the founders reward. The other objection is um, the amount. So here's an interesting thing about like pricing is really hard. Um, and most things, a lot of things are good at a certain level. They're bad if it's too much and they're bad if it's too little, you know? And so that's a question about the founder's reward is, is 20% from the first four years too much or too little or in the range of okay? Um, I think it's a really interesting question because there's no right answer. I mean, different... It's much less than, say, the Ethereum pre-mine uh, slash ICO, but um, it is much more than Bitcoin unless you count early mining as sort of a comparable. Anyway, so I think that's one of the things is people would, a lot of people, not everyone, there's some people who would just object to it in principle, um, but a lot of people would accept it at the right level and reject it at the wrong level. I really think, I think what you said when you introduced it is, it's elegant or something. I really think so. I, I, I really think the concept of the blockchain or the, the users paying out to devs through like universally, like all users equally paying out to devs in proportion to their holdings um, is a really great idea. Have there been alternatives or proposals for um, a founder's reward system uh, after it expires that have sounded probable or that um, you have There's this guy, Hasu, you know, H-A-S-U. I don't know how to pronounce his full name, but he's, um, yes. you know, like a, a good thinker and analyst of the cryptocurrency world. I'm 82% sure <laughs> that Hasu also separately mentioned something like this, but the one I was thinking of was indeed Arjun Balaji, who wrote the Theses um, article, um, in which they said, oh, the Zcash what they call the founder's reward, but I would call it a dev fund because I want to differentiate between the 15% that's going to reward the original founders and the two to 5% that's going to fund all the ongoing development. 
um, they've said, oh, that has worked as well as it has so far, and it's due to end in 2020, and what, what will Zcash do then? Um, Arjun's article went ahead and ex listed a few options, not just for Zcash, but just for all sorts of development of, of public goods or open source um, projects. Like there's the sort of volunteer model and the philanthropy model and the, um, like, like by the philanthropy model, I mean donations. And then there's the model of having companies that sort of use this thing or benefit from it for their own business, but then they also contribute back to it on the side. And then there's the founder's reward. Oh, and then there's having like a new coin every few years. So <laughs> you, you, you have a coin or a project of whatever kind, a uh, distributed network or, or something. And it comes with an ICO, which incentivizes and funds its development. And then after a few years, the ICO money has run out and everybody's learned a lot from the technology development and the attempt to find product market fit and everything and the way people use it. So then a different team or the same team or their competitors or somebody makes a new coin that you know is the next evolutionary step with a new ICO. And that's another model. I like the founders, or not the founders word, I like the dev fund model the best so far out of any model I've seen. Let's switch gears for a second and talk about block time. The What's the argument for increasing block time look like? Um, as is, Zcash supports about 100, can support about 100 times the transaction traffic it has currently and still be fine since there are, we're averaging what, around uh, four transactions per block? Um, by the way, Zcash is, has a lot more payments per block than transactions per block because you can pay out to a whole bunch of different people, like hundreds of different people in a single transaction. For example, mining pools are paying out to 100 different miners and they're paying out a small amount to every to each of the 100 miners and they can do that in one transaction. If you look at Masari.io, which is my data dashboard, they have a they have number of transactions per day on the blockchain but they separately have number of payments per day on the blockchain, which, for example, it counts multiple different payouts as different payments because there's different recipients. And it also tries to subtract out um, transactions on the Ethereum blockchain, which aren't financial, and some other stuff like that to try to normalize the, the measurement. And that's really important to me because Zcash is one of the top, one, top coins in terms of number of payments per day. Um, which I think is really interesting and underappreciated. So, but to your question, what's the point of increasing the block times? Well, there's two different answers. One is that I think it's sometimes good to increase the scalability before you need it. For one thing, there are people who are considering launching like a business or a project and they're first in investigating to see whether they think the blockchain in question will be able to support them. And so if they see that it currently isn't, then they won't launch at all. So you you won't see uh, all of their transactions getting added to the blockchain and then it's maxed out and then they stop. Instead, you'll just see they never got added to the blockchain in the first place. So it's sort of an invisible um, failure of scaling. 
Does that make sense? Yep. The other reason is that increasing the block time or the, the rate of blocks has other benefits on, uh, namely it tightens the distribution. How do I put this? It makes it less likely that your payment will take a lot longer than you typically expect. So Zcash, if you're if somebody's sending you a Zcash payment, you currently expect to wait, oh, maybe 40 minutes before it's final. But currently there's a substantial chance, like one out of 10 times maybe, that it'll take 60 minutes or 70 minutes. People have this experience a lot on, on Bitcoin too. It's even worse on Bitcoin. So by increasing the block rate, we're actually gonna tighten that so that it, you still expect it to take 40 minutes, maybe 30 something, but it's almost never gonna take 60. You, you can kind of rely on it to be final within 45 or something. Does that make sense? So it's a, it's a usability improvement for that reason. Yeah, I guess my question then is, are there security concerns or what are we trading off from a security perspective if you're increasing block time, if anything? That's a good question. We haven't analyzed it carefully yet. We're, as you know, I don't know if your listeners know, but you apparently know that we've decided to, it, increasing the block times is one of the goals of the current network upgrade. And that means we're going to be doing a lot of analysis of it, including security analysis of whether it introduces some substantial risk, but we haven't done that yet. My intuition is no. My, I basically think it's it's fine. Uh, there's another thing I wanted to bring up was um, the recent proposal for a Zcash um, algorithm upgrade. Uh, yeah. yeah. I was curious to learn more about your thinking behind a dual proof of work with time lock. Um, and feel free to explain it to uh, our listeners. Um, actually, let me pause there if you want to uh, explain what a dual proof of work system with time lock means. Okay. Um, the proposal, which is currently back on the shelf because we couldn't fit it into the current upgrade cycle, is to, oh, so that proposal might come back off the shelf in the next network upgrade cycle, um, which means it would, if, if it did, if it, so the current upgrade cycle is going to activate at the end of this year, in 2019, and the next upgrade cycle is going to activate in the spring of next year. Um, and this proposal is called Harmony Mining. And it initially came out of the uh, controversy uh, that arose when ASICs were deployed for mining Zcash last summer. So this drove out a lot of people from mining Zcash on their GPUs. And there were a lot of them, I think it was, very likely one of the most widely mined coins after Bitcoin and Ethereum in terms of the number of different people mining it. Um, and of course, the advent of ASICs made the difficulty go up and which made it less profitable for the less efficient miners. And it drove a lot of people out and a lot of people were very upset. And there was a lot of pressure um, on me, like a lot of people, uh, vigorously and in many cases angrily uh, demanding that we that the Zcash company should support software which changed the proof of work in order to invalidate the ASICs and make it again profitable for GPUs. And we decided not to do that 
um, despite the you know outcry. Um, instead, we shipped the sapling update, which was a performance improvement for the encrypted addresses, which is sort of the the real reason for Zcash's existence is to be secure, privacy-preserving, decentralized money. So the Harmony Mining is my idea for how to attract multiple factions and distribute the newly generated Zcash out to multiple different kinds of recipients. And the idea is basically there's there's some details about how to onboard people, so we don't want to uh, we don't want to make precipitous changes that would, for example, brick everyone's current ASIC Zcash miner overnight, uh, because on the night of the bricking, that would be the time that all the ASIC miners should be incentivized to get together and do some kind of fork or attack or or uh, opposition of some kind. Um, I don't know if they would, but that would be the moment when they would have the maximal uh, potential payoff for doing so. So instead, the Harmony Mining proposal has this incremental grandfatherly process whereby there's never a moment when uh, you want to coordinate with everyone else who's in the same position as you in order to try to uh, somehow oppose the change. Uh, but aside from the grandfatherly details, the basic, out, the basic idea is we'll end up with two different proofs of work so that if you have a, a Zcash, one of the original old style Zcash ASICs, it still works, um, but you only get half of the reward. And then there's a new algorithm, which is hopefully more GPU friendly, that gets the other half of the reward. And then I also added the idea of time locking. It seems as though there are concerns around a 51% uh, attack uh, probability increase um, because time lock seems to be another variable in this equation of uncertainty um, that could lead to a higher risk of there being a delta between the two mining algorithms. Um, and, and so that seems like it would increase the probability of a 51% attack. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, there's definitely some concerns. Um, an engineer who works for the electric coin company named Dara Hopwood did some really thorough analysis uh, over Christmas break, which I really appreciated. <laughs> um, yeah, have like a simulation. Uh, there are like yeah. very specific tables, and you can actually go on the uh, Zcash forum to check it out. Yeah, yeah, and the, the, a lot of the technical details are on the Zcash GitHub. Uh, more, and then there's also a forum which is operated by the Zcash Foundation. Yeah, so that's an interesting one, um, and that's one of the reasons why we postponed it from being included in the current release cycle. Uh, is that there are these uns unsettled, unresolved questions about the security and engineering difficulties. Um, my general belief is that it's probably going to turn out to be secure because, um, because security is a property of a bigger system. How do I put this? I don't think any proof of work Nakamoto consensus is actually secure. Like I think, I think, uh, Proof of work Nakamoto is actually failing, and um, and everyone's going to have to migrate to something else eventually. And why do you think it's failing? Uh, because of the fifty-one percent attacks. So, like when I originally heard about Bitcoin, I don't know if you know this, but uh, I'm the author of the first blog post on the internet about Bitcoin. 
<laughs> it's a very short little blog post, but what a wonderful claim to fame. Yeah. Um, anyway, so when I first heard about Bitcoin, I thought, you know, this probably isn't secure. And then, you know, sort of the longer and harder I thought about it and read whatever science papers I could find in the ensuing years, I basically continued to think, like, in terms of game theory or computer security, it just doesn't seem like there's a, a solid argument for why this is secure. However, Bitcoin was working in practice all that time, right? So after a few years of it working in practice and it not getting attacked, I said, okay, well, there must have been something wrong with my theory then, <laughs> at least provisionally. Like maybe it's still going to break, but so far it's worked. So that's a good indicator. And that's why we went with Bitcoin consensus, you know, Nakamoto proof of work consensus with Zcash. Uh, the other one that we considered was the Stellar consensus protocol, which is one of those semi-centralized, or maybe that's the wrong word, but it's a, it's some kind of weird federated thing where each user specifies which servers they're willing to rely on, and then those servers specify which other servers they're willing to peer with. And, and it's kind of like, Kind of like the internet. The internet isn't exactly decentralized. It's not like anyone could just spin up an ISP the way you can spin up a Zcash node or a Bitcoin node. Uh, but it's not exactly centralized either. Like there's no one in charge of the internet. So the Stellar Consensus Protocol was a pretty good candidate when we were vetting consensus protocols back in like 2015 uh, and 2016. <clears throat> and I decided not to go with the Stellar Consensus Protocol because it I wasn't sure about the sort of political and systemic consequences of its semi-centralized, federated internet-style architecture. Like, I, I'm not really satisfied with the internet's uh, level of decentralization. I want a more decentralized internet than the one we've got. So that's one reason I didn't want to go with Stellar's consensus protocol. The other reason was that Bitcoin's consensus protocol had been running in practice and surviving you know, active attack for several years by then. <clears throat> so that's why we copied it. Well, when the 51% attack started last fall and with the ETC 51% attack that just happened a couple of weeks ago, now I say to myself, okay, I was right all along. Bitcoin's consensus protocol is insecure and it's just taken the attackers this long to figure out how to profit from exploiting its insecurity. Um, so now I consider it quite urgent. Like I previously always thought that we needed to migrate Zcash to a better consensus protocol eventually, but now I think it's quite urgent. Let's go back to the risk of there being a delta between the two mining algorithms. Do you think that increases uh, the surface area for an attack or what? how are you thinking about the security risk that runs with having uh, two mining algorithms and a time off? Well... <sighs> See, that it basically goes back to what I was just saying about the basic concept of the consensus protocol. Like if you think, if, you're, if you're, your paradigm or your axioms are that proof of work and Nakamoto consensus are what gives you security, then there's a measure of that, which is how much security do you get out of your proof of work? And that is the paradigm in which Dara Hopwood's analysis on GitHub shows that you get less Nakamoto security out of our current dual proof of work designs than you would get out of a single proof of work design with the same amount of uh, mining uh, of funding going into the mining of it. Does that make sense? But if you think 
Nakamoto consensus isn't actually protecting you at all. It's just sort of imposing a cost on the attacker. And something else is what's actually protecting you from getting attacked. Then that means changing the cost that you impose on the attacker might, or like reducing the cost that you impose on the attacker might be okay if it's not reducing it too much. If whatever that other thing is, is going to successfully protect you even when this is the cost um, to attack. Uh, and if there's some advantages you get from doing it this way instead of the other way. Does that make sense? Yes. And I, I wanted to also talk about GPU miners because I think the hope is that more GPU miners will come on to uh, become part of the Zcash community, correct? Yeah, yeah. And presumably from other privacy protocols? I wouldn't say that, uh, but hold on. I just want to throw in this idea that um, one of our, the Zcash company, the, the Zero Coin Electric Coin company, um, it has a technical advisory board with a bunch of really, really smart people that I am very grateful to. Among them is this guy named Gordon Moore, and he posted a really little insightful little quip comment on the GitHub, which was, okay, he says, I, I'm totally paraphrasing, so if this is wrong and stupid, then Gordon didn't say it. But if it's insightful and meaningful, then he did. Um, it said, he said, okay, so if you're not relying on this dual proof of work thing to protect your users from double spends, then it's really just an airdrop to GPU miners, which means you could really just give half of the mining reward to the ASIC miners, give half of the mining reward to the GPU miners, but don't use the GPU miners output for any of your consensus protocol. Just rely 100% on the ASIC side for the consensus protocol, but you just want to give out money to all the GPU miners of the world. I thought that was a really insightful way to clarify that it, there's a two-sided transaction happening here between the coin holders and the miners. And it's beneficial, bo both sides are beneficial to the whole ecosystem. Well, it seems like in order to mine Zcash with a time lock um, on the GPU miners part, there, there seems to be a high level of loyalty to Zcash mission required, but it seems like loyalty is pretty expensive, uh, especially in this bear market. How do you ensure that GPU miners will stay loyal to the Zcash protocol um, if there's a time lock? If there, I think there's a lot of <clears throat> misunderstanding of the effects of time locking as I've proposed it. And we didn't really have time in the, in the current release cycle to go over it and for me to write a rationale and get third parties to evaluate if what I'm saying makes sense or not and so forth. Um, so that's one of the benefits of having kicked it out of the current um, release cycle and potentially including it in the next release cycles. Maybe we'll have time to go over this stuff. So there's a widely held idea if you had a version of Zcash in the future where we where like we could roll out dual proof of work without time locking, that's like Zcash variant, future variant A, and then there's future variant B where we rolled out dual proof of work with time locking. There's a widely held idea that in Zcash variant B, the miners make a lot less money, the, the time locked miners, um, because loss of liquidity is expensive, right? So money guaranteed to you in the future is worth less than money delivered to you today, right? And I think that may be mistaken because it neglects the effect of um, competition between miners and the fact that every miner who opts out of mining means more profit for all the other miners. And that means that 
in the difference between Zcash variant A and Zcash variant B is mostly, I think, a shift of the profitability of GPU mining from the less loyal to the more loyal. So or from the less like long serving to the more long serving. So basically everybody, so to think of, for each miner, think of how consistently and how long-term they mine Zcash before they either turn it off or switch or go rent out their GPUs in IceHash instead or whatever. So some people do that for a day, some people do it for a week, some people do it for a month, some people do it for a year, et cetera, right? I think the main impact financially of time locking is not to reduce the profitability of GPU mining compared to non-time locking. I think it's mainly to shift from uh, everyone who is shorter term than the median miner and reward everyone who is longer term than the median miner. Let's take a second to switch the conversation from Zcash to another privacy-focused coin. As the day of recording, today is January 15th, and Grin officially launched Hooray. Mainnet. It's Grin Day. Today it's Grin Day. It's Grin's birthday. It is Grin's birthday. I was curious what you think of Grin and where you see the coin going. I love the community, and I'm interested to see all of the hype about it and all of the investment into infrastructure and all that. And um, I'm really Looking forward to seeing where it goes. The, the privacy slash security properties that Mimblewimble provides are partly depend on the privacy slash security of the network layer communication. If, in order to know if it's safe to make a certain kind of payment, like you're you're in a country where it's illegal to buy Bibles, you're considering buying a Bible, you've got a cryptocurrency wallet, somebody's offering to sell you a Bible in return for cryptocurrency, and you've got to decide, can I go ahead with this or like, is this going to put my family in jeopardy? In order to understand the answer to that, with the whole Mimblewimble architecture, somebody out there has got to reason about both the network layer, like how your wallet connects to the network and who it talks to and when, and the behavior of the recipient, like the person you're trying to buy the Bible from, as well as the blockchain. This is also true of Zcash. You've, it's, it's true of all of all security slash privacy analysis is that you've got to include all those levels. But what makes it different for Grin or why is it especially tricky for Grin? Payments are interactive and that's not only a usability problem, but it's a privacy security problem. For example, if you're considering buying the Bible, but you're not sure if the Bible seller is actually in a, like a, it's an undercover sting where they're trying to find Bible buyers so that they can send you to re you know, atheist re-education camp which sounds hilarious until you realize that's exactly what's happening in Xinjiang, China right now if you tried to buy a Quran. But anyway, um, so first of all, it's, it's interactive and that's not only a usability and deployment problem, but it's a privacy and security problem because the Bible seller might be the one out to get you. And if you interact with them as part of the process of paying them, that might put you at greater risk. And then another way to look at it is the analysis of the safety of Mimblewimble you can't make strong conclusions about any one of the parts because they're so, sort of all interdependent. So you can look at the blockchain and say, oh, evidence of my purchase of this Quran is not showing up in the blockchain. Is it? Wait a minute. What is this data that's showing up in the blockchain? Then you have to say, oh, well, in order to decide if this data that's showing up in the blockchain reveals me or not, puts my family in jeopardy or not, I have to know the behavior of the other network nodes that I I interacted with at the time I purchased it. 
I could be wrong, but it's it's I, I, I think there's a lot of work to do to determine if that's going to be safe or not for practical purposes, like buying a Quran and Xinjiang. Outside of Grand, outside of Zcash, just on this about the space as a whole, what initially drew you to privacy like or privacy focused tech? Where when did that start for you? I guess it was when I discovered the science papers of David Chong, which was in 1993, and that showed. I, you know, I guess I guess it's just that I've always considered privacy to be part and parcel of decentralization. So the the first step in my adulthood, my turning into an adult, was when I was about 15 or 16, and I found out, much to my shock, from like a newspaper headline on a dead tree because we didn't have internet. I found out that the Berlin Wall had suddenly fallen and East Germans were allowed to just travel right over into West Germany whenever they wanted. And that really changed my understanding of how the world worked. And I thought, wow, things are changing such that national borders are no longer like literal concrete walls with guards with guns. They're no longer jail cells keeping people in. They're just turning into imaginary lines. And then the next thing was a couple of years later when I discovered the internet. And I immediately thought, aha, this is the next step. This is where the you know human evolution is going, is that now that this new technology has been invented, national borders are no longer barriers of silence that prevent people from being able to talk to each other. And then for me, the next step was a couple of years later where the internet led me to these new cryptography ideas, such as David Chomp's papers. And I said, aha, I found it. This must be the third step, which is this new technology, which is cryptocurrency, which makes it so national barriers and distance and culture and things like that are no longer walls that prevent people from being able to share resources and enter into contracts and to cooperate. From the get-go, it seemed obvious to me that this was the most important thing that human evolution could go to next after internet and would be eventually necessary for the sustenance of the internet revolution. And it seemed obvious to me that strong security slash privacy was just a necessary part of it. It would never work without that. And I still think that today. And what do you think it will take until the mainstream is quote unquote interested in privacy? Um, Or does that even matter for them to do you foresee it as being something that's already layered in so no one really pays much attention to it? Or do you think there has to be a narrative shift or a certain moment? That's a great question. It's a really good question. I think there's a really strong signal, which is that it eventually just gets layered in, which is that the entire World Wide Web is protected by HTTPS. Like nobody, nobody has to opt in. Nobody has to say, I prefer HTTPS over HTTP for political reasons. Like nobody thinks that, do they? <laughs> they actually, there was a time actually when people did. Like it was a serious process where it was a political statement. Um, it was considered dangerous or subversive by different government agencies for a while. Um, but then, uh, you know, gradually it just became so useful to protect commerce and private communications that it became normal. So that's the that's the positive path. Now, the, for the HTTPS itself, for the the encrypted, protected World Wide Web, it took about 20 years for that process to play out, um, which is a hell of a long time. Um, and I'm also afraid that right now, are you aware of the new law in Australia that requires a government backdoor in all software? Yes. So that is a really ominous sign. 
um, for one reason, because Australia is part of a um, national spy agency coalition with USA and UK. And so it seems quite likely that it's like a trial balloon to test it out there and then they'll import it to their home countries. Because um, I suppose they figured that there was a, a less vigorous civil society in Australia that could resist it. So I'm, I'm quite concerned that we're going to see a rollback of this process by which the global infrastructure of communication became secured over the last 20 years um, if that if that Australian bill is uh, an accurate harbinger. I also want to talk about a profile you had in Fortune. They detailed a few of your ventures beforehand. And at one point, it reports that you were living out of your car. Can you walk us through that journey? What led up to the point and how did you get back on your feet? Um, what led up to that point is I had a little startup, which was called Least Authority, which still exists. But at that time, it was a small startup with a few employees, and it made little little money in unpredictable at unpredictable times. <laughs> and we had started I'd started working on the Zcash project, and we had started and so I started spending more and more, more and more of my time on that, and less and less sustaining the the original startup. And we'd started running out of money, and we were we decided to go solicit. Uh, venture capital funding for Zcash so that we could actually implement it and deploy it. Um, which is, you know, to harken back to the beginning of this conversation, which is why there's a founder's reward, is because we needed money to pay people to do it. Um, and of course, we hadn't gotten any yet because it's quite an effort to convince uh, Silicon Valley VCs to give you money. And in that context, I started going through a divorce. <laughs> Um, which I don't know if you know, but that often has a lot of complicated and sometimes severe financial impacts on the people involved. And um, I never know, like, if I should be proud or ashamed of this, like ex post facto, it worked out. But a priori, I made this very questionable decision, which was, screw it, I'd rather like risk everything and keep drilling on this attempt to get Zcash launched um, because it just I just love it too much to do anything else. And so I started conserving money by such things as uh, not signing a new lease. It was summertime. It's nice in Boulder. Um, and I have, or I had, I still have, but I had a, a Volvo 240 station wagon, which is like basically an apartment on wheels. You could totally lie down on the back of that thing. Wow. Yeah. True entrepreneur. <laughs> And I, I, I mean, that is always the risk you take, right? So by, by greatest, by greatest good luck, like I, I do not, how do I, I do definitely do not recommend anyone else follow this example. Um, all the people like, you know, 90, you know, the survivorship bias problem, yeah. right? You're, yes. you're, you're talking to me, you're not talking to the 999 other people who did something like that and their life was really messed up. Right. Uh, so anyway, that, that's what happened. Um, we got really, really lucky, you know? We, we got really lucky. In hindsight, it was successful. So um, you were right all along. <laughs> yeah. um, another thing I want to talk about from your past. Um, so you changed your name to Zuko, but originally um, you'd been known as Bryce. Um, what inspired the change? And I want to debunk this. Did Avatar, The Last Airbender, have anything to do with it? Uh, yeah, they probably named him after me. 
<laughs> but I think that's actually quite unlikely, but uh, I did have the name first. And what inspired the switch to Zuko? It was an experiment in pseudonymity. Um, so the Cypherpunk's mailing list was the watering hole uh, for cryptographers and creative, disruptive activists of all sorts to gather in the early days of the internet. And that's where I learned a lot. And one of the ideas in the Cypherpunk's mailing list was the concept of cryptocurrency uh, as pioneered by David Chong. That was one of the most exciting central concepts in their intellectual space. And another one, probably two, the second one out of three, is the idea of pseudonymity, which is that you can have an identity, you can have relationships, you can have a, a role in society, you can have business relationships without exposing your sort of legal name that allows someone to track you down and threaten you with jail or threaten to break your kneecaps or anything. That's the concept of pseudonymity. Uh, the third one is the concept of anonymous communication. So that's why I, so I decided to do an experiment, <clears throat> like just to learn from, from practice. I've been reading about all this delightful sort of science fiction fantasy in which people live in, in virtual reality. They live in cyberspace. And they're able to do everything they need to do, earn a living, have relationships, all the things. But nobody can figure out where they live in order to go like have them arrested or extorted or something like that. I thought that was a great science fiction fantasy. There's a there's a a, a fantastic science fiction book. Um which is a, a great classic that's, well, maybe it's not a great classic because it's little little known, little appreciated, but it should be a great classic. It's by Werner Vinci, and it's called True Names. And it's, it's a pretty short book, True Names. Um, and it's, it's got two things in there. Of, I mean, it's, a, it's really actually a good story. It's exciting. It's thought-provoking. You like the characters or you hate them as appropriate. Um, you don't know what's going to happen next, which I appreciate in a plot. Uh, it's it's a, got a lot going for it. But also as an historical document, it has the interesting thing going for it that it's one of the first, either the first or the second, or maybe the third, um, fictional representation of virtual reality in cyberspace. And it's also one of the first descriptions of this concept of pseudonymity that uh, that you can have an identity and a, and a role in relationships, but protect yourself from being physically coerced. And was like the name Zuko in there? Or? Oh, that's a great question. So the answer, as far as I can remember, was I wanted to pick a random name that no one could guess. It was affiliated with my other identity, Bryce Wilcox. Mm -hmm. And I wanted it to be short. So I thought if there are any four-letter names, that weren't used, weren't taken, so that I could search the entire um, discussion board of the internet, which was called Usenet. I could search all the mailing lists that I knew of and all of Usenet. Usenet was like, you know, Twitter. So I wanted to be able to uh, search for any instances of my pseudonym being mentioned anywhere. So I wanted it to be unique. Oh, cool. And I decided I couldn't find any four-letter unique names that wouldn't match someone out some other like word or something 
So I picked a five-letter unique name. I think that was basically it. It was intended to be utterly arbitrary so that no one could link it with me, and I didn't think it would be very important. But like I said, this was an experiment in order to learn how things work in practice, right? Not like in the science fiction fantasies of the cypherpunk spanning list. So I immediately learned that identities are quite sticky, and you can't, it's not very easy to just use one and then forget it and throw it away. Absolutely. Another thing you've been vocal about outside of pseudonymity are your experiments with different diets. And what I find interesting is that you were actually on the carnivore diet before keto and uh, Bitcoin carnivory were a big trend. I was curious about what led you to that diet and what has been transformative for you. What led me to it was initially um, first person, firsthand experience when my then wife went on a carnivore diet. <clears throat> and um, in doing so, she experienced uh, a most eye-popping, improbable, miraculous recovery from some severe illness. And she also lost a lot of weight. She rapidly, over the course of about nine months, lost all that excess body fat and started looking better and better and younger and younger. And I too was fat at that time. So that was my motivation to try it myself. So originally it was purely empirical, but then over the ensuing years, Amber and I started doing research into it. And I decided that it was scientifically justified as well as empirical. And we're actually running up on the hour now, but if you're going to give a book or article recommendation for our listeners, what are you reading or thinking about lately that you think they should check out? Okay, so first of all, everyone should go read True Names or Vernier Vinji. And then, um, let's see, what I'm reading right now or trying to read is called Radical Markets by Glenn Weil. Um, I'm only halfway through it, so I don't know if I can recommend it to you yet. Because I have a rule, you can't recommend things until you've read them in, your, in their entirety. It's a good rule. Oh, and the other thing I definitely recommend is a history book called Real Time WW2. And the way you read that one is you subscribe to the real-time World War II uh, account on Twitter, and then you read all of its tweets. And that's um, the best way to read a history book ever, it turns out. It, Twitter. <laughs> Who knew? Yep. Awesome. Great recommendations. Thank you so much, Zuko. Really appreciated having you on today. Oh, thank you. It was really fun. I appreciate it. Hey, everyone. Suna here. If you liked this episode of The Token Daily and want to help us take crypto to the top of Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, then please do us a favor and rate, review, and smash that subscribe button. To leave a review, simply go to the Token Daily homepage and scroll down until you see five blank stars. Taking a few seconds to fill those stars in and leaving a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. Thanks again for choosing to listen to The Token Daily. I'll see you next time.